Hello and welcome to another instalment of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're looking at Legend of the Shadow Warriors by Stephen Hand, with art by Martin McKenna and cover art by Terry Oakes. It's book 44 in the long-running fighting fantasy series. Before we get into that, I need to thank a new patron, someone who has gone to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledged as little as a single English pound to support my nonsense. Everyone who backs me gets access to a whole host of gaming stuff, including my brand new gamebook Prime Time Dungeons. Rob Maunder, thank you very much for your support. It is greatly appreciated. Legend of the Shadow Warriors is not a book I am familiar with at all, which I always enjoy. Usually I recognise the cover art at least, but in this case it sparks no memories within me whatsoever. That's all the more surprising given that the cover art shows an evil scarecrow with a jack-o'-lantern for a head. I love an evil scarecrow, and I love a jack-o'-lantern, so this cover is right up my street. Terry Oakes did a bunch of covers for fighting fantasy books and his work is always solid, painterly fair and this is no exception. It's really good. I'm excited to see Martin McKenna's name on the credits. He's a great illustrator and his scratchy style and use of light and shade often work particularly well with horror-tinged books. Stephen Hand had previously worked on the tremendously fun Dead of Night with Jim Bambera and I have high expectations for this solo-authored book, so let's take a look at the rules. We've got skill, stamina and luck all present and correct, and there's not an additional stat to be seen. That's always refreshing this late in the day. We get very little equipment to start with and no provisions at all, but we do get to generate some gold with which to buy gear. We do this by rolling two dice and adding 12 to discover how rich or poor we are. I look forward, as always, to seeing how much a gold piece is worth this week. There may not be an additional stat, but the rules section does tease us with the prospect of rules for special weapons and armour. We are told that each weapon will have its own rules, and this is a great idea. Aside from adding skill points, there's not been a great deal done with weapon rules in fighting fantasy. And I feel like there's a lot of design space there for making certain fights easier or harder depending on what you are using, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what the range of options is in this book. Armour is something else that hasn't been used much, probably because it has a tendency to slow combat down by adding an extra step to every combat round. However, the rules here are quite fun, with armour reducing combat damage for a certain number of rounds related to its durability. Eventually the durability will run out and the armour will be rendered useless. This seems like a fairly clean approach in terms of rule design, but I will be impressed if you can manage to balance it. Damage reduction is very powerful because it doesn't have a random component to it and because it messes with one of the core premises of the system, that of being punished for losing a combat round. I think the durability of armour is a potentially fun way to try and mitigate that. Essentially you've got armour acting as a prosthetic stamina repository in this book, similar to provisions but with a different flavour, and we will see I guess how it works in practice. I have rolled up a character who I have decided to call Capillary Addendum. 
which I think has a nice horror tinge to it. They have a skill of 10, a stamina of 21, and a measly luck of 7. They have their simple sword, and their pockets are swollen with 17 gold pieces. I think we're ready to play Legend of the Shadow Warriors. Uh, so we have a little poem to uh, start us off. Shadow Warriors on steeds infernal, riding ever faster, uprooting tree and breaking stone, searching for their master. It was important when reading poetry to use a very affected voice uh, in order to indicate that poetry is happening. Uh, it's absolutely forbidden to read poetry using a voice that any normal human being would use for conversation. Background. Galantria was once the most civilised land on the face of Titan. Its history began when Orjan the Builder halted the great roaming of his tribe to build a village which he called Lendl. From there, his people spread, building ever more villages, and Lendl itself evolved into a walled city. Orjan's son, Regulus, led the people into a new age of wealth and forged the eight largest towns in the nation of Galantria, with Royal Lendl as its capital. Galantria continued to expand and could well have covered the entire Old World, were it not for the fact that it bordered other nations whose people also had thoughts of expansion. Royal Lendl to me just sounds like a spa town somewhere in the north of England, populated by ruddy-faced Yorkshiremen and affable pub bores who always vote for the most right-wing candidate in an election. Directly south lay the nation of Fenfrey, and to the east the country of Bryce. Though initially relations were cordial, the people of Bryce grew jealous of Galantria's wealth and prepared an invasion. Next, Galantrian colonies in the Northlands rebelled and sent an army down into their parent country to win their independence, and it did not take long before the nearby nations of Fenfrey and Lendeland got caught up in those terrible events. Thus began the War of the Four Kingdoms, which is an extract from Life on Titan by Erst Kanderman. So, yeah, fair enough. It's doing the traditional thing of giving us background on made-up places and kingdoms that I personally don't care about one way or the other. But it is doing it quite efficiently, which I appreciate. And also, these are places that I believe are covered in the fighting fantasy book Titan. So um, it gets a few bonus points for not just inventing a new kingdom out of whole cloth, which is what most fighting fantasy writers will do. Oh, and there's some more background as well. The treacherous Baron Tag led his own monarch into an ambush, he himself plunging a poisoned dagger into King Constein's back. Wartorn and leaderless, Galantria fell into despair. Fortunately, help was at hand in the form of Tantalon, the court magician, who seized the throne in the name of the people. Using a mixture of cunning, wizardry and brilliant strategy, Tantalon brought the war to an end single-handed. Yet, though he exercised the authority of kingship, he did not keep the crown for himself. He was saving it for another. Excerpt from Court Essays and Observations, Two Decades of Royal Decorum, by Hugo Montpellier. 
this is feeling a little bit different. I'm enjoying the fact that the author is trying to think of some different ways to present the usual fantasy nonsense. I like the fact the phrase in the name of the people is in quote marks. Um, yeah, people seizing power always, always claim to be doing it in the name of the people. It is very rarely true. Aged and weary, Tantalon killed two birds with one stone. At one and the same time, he found Constain's successor and righted twelve wrongs by declaring the latter to be tasks which the former had to complete to win the crown. Thus, a new bloodline began to rule in Galantria, Orjan's lineage having ended with the betrayed Constein. Law and order were restored and an unlikely hero became king. Strangely enough, the coronation coincided with Tantalon's passing away, but the wizard's death and the start of a fresh royal dynasty signalled a new era for the nation. However, Galantria was no longer the centre of the old world. That position had passed to Femfrey, the realm of King Chalana, who ruled with his magical crown of kings. Chalana lent this great artefact to the rulers of the other countries on condition that they join his now mighty alliance. Indeed, Chalana's wise and generous leadership has proved to be the sole guiding light leading us into the next age of humanity. Extract from Chalana the Reformer, Volume 3, The Fruitful Years by Matra Skranskir. Uh, with all of that uh, politics and whatnot out of the way, we now get our own background, which is entitled Sword for Hire. And there is a little illustration above the uh, Sword for Hire section, which appears to be a spidery creature with a screaming face, uh, sort of screaming human face. That's a little bit upsetting, but it is very nice. You are a veteran adventurer. Lending your sword arm to almost anyone who makes you the right offer. Though it must be said you have no great love for gold, requiring only enough to get by. You seek adventure and excitement for their own sake, and look to correct the world's many injustices. You sound like someone who'd be unbearable at parties. Over the years you have fought for many armies, and have joined many expeditions into unknown lands. During the War of the Four Kingdoms you fought on the side of Galantria, your homeland. Your courage, skill and leadership earned you many decorations, and though you never felt comfortable with it, the rank of captain. When the war ended, you spurned the fame you had gained and took to the road in search of fresh adventures. Five years on, you are now back in Royal Lendl, but the people who once sang your praises have forgotten you. It's taken only four days for you to become bored with the city, so, hopeful of bumping into something interesting, you decide to take yourself to a tavern named the First Step to slake your thirst. It is highly likely that someone in here will be looking for a person with your particular talents. Indeed, you are only on the point of draining your second tankard of Lendale when you feel a frantic tapping on your shoulder and turn to face a worried-looking man. Judging by his appearance, you would say that he is a farmer living on the country's borderland. His words tumble out in hurried anxiety. Please, Captain, you must help us in Karnstein. Our homes are being ravaged by an unstoppable foe, and our people are being cut down like dead wheat. Three of us, that's me, Medokan and my two fellow villagers, have come to the city seeking help. But the authorities won't listen to us. 
They think we're making it all up. They don't believe we're being attacked by the Shadow Warriors. It cannot be. The Shadow Warriors are merely bogeymen used by mothers to make their naughty children behave. Every Galantrian child knows the short nursery rhyme that tells of them, which we saw right at the start. Before you have time to respond, Mendicant continues, No one will help us. Even mercenaries we approached have laughed in our faces. Then, when we heard you were here, you're our last hope. Will you help us? While his words have hardly been a glowing tribute to your skills, you can see that the man is terrified and in dire need of help. You're very doubtful about this shadow warrior business, though. It is much more likely that the people of Karnstein are being terrorised by a gang of brigands got up in frightening costumes. Still, you have heard of Karnstein. It is a mere speck of dust on the maps. There's virtually nothing there. What could the raiders possibly want from such a place? Perhaps they just enjoy picking on scared, helpless peasants. Whatever the reason, it enrages you to hear of such wanton viciousness. You make up your mind to go to Karnstein on the spot. You'll defend the village and teach these shadow warriors a lesson they'll never forget. So quite a lengthy background section there, but I feel as though the last bit was nicely evocative, set out the stakes and gave us a nice clear mission to go on, which I always appreciate. So we've got a nice picture of the inn with a fellow uh, holding a pair of dice um, dressed in say, late medieval, possibly early Renaissance garb. Um, it's really nice. Martin McKenna, very good at these kind of scenes. Though he is relieved that you have agreed to help his village, Mendican now begins to look embarrassed. He says, we are only a poor and simple people. All we can pay you is 200 gold pieces and, and what is more, the village elders have decreed that you are to be paid only after the job is done. Hi-ho, such are the times. Still, you won't go back on your word, so you agree to his terms, and Mendican smiles once more in relief. Now he must go and find his friends, so they can prepare to leave for Karnstein. You yourself will have to buy provisions and other equipment necessary for the journey and your adventure. You shake hands with Mendican and arrange to meet his party on the main trade route south of the city in two hours' time. The farmer then hurries out of the tavern, just as a gaudily dressed fellow strolls in and elbows his way towards you. This is Bartolf, an infamous gambler. He struts through even the most dangerous parts of the city wearing expensive silks as a sign of his success at countless gaming tables. I haven't seen you here for some time, he says with a sly grin. Care to try your luck? Although you shouldn't be wasting any time here, a win would enable you to buy more equipment and thus prepare you for the road ahead. Do you want to accept Bartolf's challenge? Well, one of the rules of life is never play a game of chance with someone with a city in their name. So, uh, yeah, never sit down to a gaming table with uh, Pete Birmingham or uh, Kathleen Boston. They're always sharps, absolutely always. But I think my, my adventurer capillary addendum is a trusting and simple soul, so I think they'll be more than happy to challenge Bartolf to a game of chance. 
Rubbing his well-manicured hands in unrestrained glee, Bartolf sits behind you and hands you a die. I put some gold on the table as a stake, he says, and roll the die. If you roll a four or above, you win and keep your stake money, and you take an amount equal to your stake from my own purse. If you roll less than four, you lose and I keep my stake. Easy, eh? Yes, you think, almost too easy. A small crowd drawn by the exaggerated loudness of Bartol's voice gather round to watch. So how many gold pieces do you wish to gamble? Um, we'll start off by gambling two gold pieces. And then we must roll a die. So I get a five. Your smile turns into a look of mute disbelief as the die suddenly flips over. Your roll has become a one. Too bad! says Bartolf, reaching for your gold. The die he gave you is obviously loaded, and he is a trickster. Do you want to grab his wrist and accuse him of cheating? Or would you rather avoid any trouble and let him have the money? Yeah, I mean, that is like the most blatant cheating I've seen. I kind of assumed that he would try and sucker me in by, by letting me win the first one and then suggesting that we play for a much larger stake. But... I think the thing to do here is to grab his wrist and accuse him of cheating. Um, I don't think Capillary Addendum is the uh, the sort of person who um, is willing to let things go. Aha. Test your luck. I am lucky just with a roll of seven. Luck now six. What? I a cheat? How dare you? Despite the pain caused by your tight grip on his puny wrist, Bartelf is still able to put on a show of offended outrage that seems just a little too well practised. As far as the onlookers can tell, you lost fair and square. When you pick up the die and roll one seven times in a row, however, they make it quite clear that they like cheats even less than they like bad losers. They grab Bartolf and prepare to drag him into the backyard. Before the rogue disappears altogether, you search him for any gold which you have already lost, and in addition, you take six gold pieces belonging to him. So, 23 is our new gold total. Satisfied that justice is about to be done, you close your ears to Bartolf's whining and leave the tavern, taking his die with you. Add the gold pieces and the loaded die to your adventure sheet. Excellent. Who knows when a loaded die might not come in handy. Leaving the tavern behind you, you walk towards the sprawling market area in the centre of the city. Ironically, the market stands next to Royal Lendl's poorest district, a warren of dilapidated buildings housing beggars and thieves. All in all, it is a sad and dangerous place. The sorts of things you want would normally cost you a small fortune. Luckily, you have a good many merchant friends who will sell you their wares for next to nothing. The eastern side of the market is where you will find all the hardware you may need, weapons, basic equipment and so on. On the western side, more unusual items are to be found. Do you want to visit the western or the eastern side first? Um, let's go and have a look at the unusual items. I love an unusual item. So, if you allowed yourself to be diverted and gambled with Bartolf in the First Step Tavern... Uh, we have to turn to a specific paragraph. Oh, I love that kind of stuff. Love it. Turning away from an annoying shyster who's trying to sell you a mongoose paperweight made of plaster, you find your way blocked by six men dressed in heavy armour. 
they are city guards. Once you see the gnarled old weasel who is leading them, you understand what all this is about. It is Quinsbury Wode, Galantria's chief tax collector with his personal retinue. Wode produces a scroll from the depths of his over-large robes and says, <coughs> Captain, I am hereby authorised to serve you with this bill of taxes, which must be paid forthwith. In lieu of satisfactory fiscal settlement, I have an open warrant for your arrest. He presents you with the scroll and continues, The original balance charged at compound interest half yearly and at a fixed annual percentage rate for five years comes to 568 gold pieces precisely. Do you have the money? There is a picture of Quinsbury Wode. That is a name I might have come up with, Quinsbury Wode. And with the guards, and it is absolutely cracking. Quinsbury himself looks small and uh, sort of late middle-aged with a uh, huge scroll and the oversized robes. But the guards behind him are absolutely excellent. They look really just beautifully realistic in a way. One of them is yawning. One of them is taking his sword out. Another one is standing with his his halberd held at a uh, sort of relaxed angle it's just absolutely cracking um, i'm a sucker for people who take the time to do armor properly and um the armor's just really really nicely rendered it's not showy but it is just a fantastic piece of art anyway uh, back to our tax problem uh, you clearly have not got and cannot afford to pay such a vast sum now you regret ever returning to the capital. But what will you do? You could plead poverty and let the guards arrest you, or try to bribe Quinsbury Wode, or turn on your heels and make a run for it. Uh, I love an adventure that's gone wrong really early doors. I don't know why, it just really appeals to me. There was the, uh, was it a Luke Sharp book? Might have been Daggers of Darkness, where we spent just forever trying to get out of the starting area and i found it enormously appealing so um even though this is a significant reversal of fortune i think there's a lot to be said for this so oh, i don't know what to do though um is quinsbury woed the sort of person to be bribed with 23 gold coins i mean he wants 568 i have to assume that he will skim something off that which was kind of how tax collectors made a living once upon a time you know they would be told to collect x amount with the understanding that uh, anything they uh, were able to extract above and beyond that amount in taxation uh, was was theirs to keep much as i distrust all police i guess i'm going to plead poverty and let the guards arrest me and see whether there's some means of extrapolating myself from this situation via due process. The city guards take you to a nearby jail where you are to be held until dawn tomorrow. At that time, an armoured wagon will come to take you to the city dungeon, a grim complex from which few ever return. The guards take your weapon, cross it off your adventure sheet, and lock you in a dirty cage. So going extremely well i've gone out to do some shopping 
for things that might help in an adventure, and I've already lost one of the most important tools of the adventuring trade, my sword. Then the guards depart, leaving you in the care of the jailer. This brute sits by a table, sucking on a bottle of grog and reading a book called Confessions of a Ratcatcher. Since there is only one cage in the jail, and no other prisoners, and only the single jailer, your thoughts turn to escape. Luckily, none of your other possessions have been taken from you. Will you pour some metal rot, if you have any, on the lock and slip out? Shout an insult at the jailer in the hope that he will come to punish you, thus giving you the chance to overpower him? Think of a way to trick the jailer into setting you free, or do nothing and await tomorrow's dungeon wagon. Oh, lots of choices. There's a picture of the jailer. Um, it's got one foot up on the table, reading his book. There's a discarded bottle of grog beside him. It's pretty good. Um, let's see if I can trick the jailer into setting me free. Maybe I can use a load of dice for that. You opt for the oldest trick in the book. Groaning aloud, you clutch at your side and fall to your knees in an act of epic agony. The jailer glances over his shoulder to see what all the fuss is about. Test your luck. So with a luck of six, this will need to be a good roll. Four. Excellent. Concerned, the jailer walks over to your cage, unlocks it and rushes in to help you. You spring forward, snatch the keys from his pudgy hand and leap out of the cage. You slam the door shut and lock it before the jailer has time to do a single thing. Then you throw away the key and leave the jail. The imprisoned man's cries echo behind you as you make your way out of the city. Will you leave by the south gate, which opens out onto the main trade route, or by the nearer east gate? So let's go to the south gate and see if we can meet up with these uh, villagers. You have wasted much precious time in Royal Lendl, but the south gate is in sight at last. It is a massive, counterbalanced, two-door structure made of heavily reinforced steel and is set in the awesome city wall, which is so thick as to have tunnels and defensive posts built into it. There is not much traffic passing through the exit, and the gate wardens there are concerned with searching a trader's caravan, so no one notices when you are pulled into a derelict shack by a figure clad from head to foot in black robes. Though he is veiled, you recognise the swarthy face of a man-orc. He wields an evil-looking blade with manic ferocity and hisses with hatred. Die, fool! Neither you nor your peasant friends shall reach Karnstein alive. My masters will be done. Then he is upon you. So the man-orc assassin has a skill of eight and a stamina of eight. And we have to defeat him without losing any stamina points. So, for the first time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the man-orc assassin. I should have said that losing my sword reduces my skill by one point to a skill of nine. Um, so I had an effective skill of nine rather than eight. And I was hit four times, I want to say and reduced to 13 stamina points by the man-orc assassin. Also, in the middle of that fight, we went five rounds in a row drawing our attack scores, which I don't think has ever happened before. Amazing how the dice can shake out sometimes. However, I suspect I've been poisoned, because he stabbed me quite a number of times. 
Though your evil foe has fallen, he has struck you with a cruel blade. A magical dagger that inflicts cuts which continue to deepen even after the weapon itself has been withdrawn. The wounds grow and worsen, resulting in a slow and painful death. Fortunately, you know the proper treatment for such ill. You must seal the cruel wounds with heat. Only then will they heal normally. If you have a lantern and oil, you must light it and press its hot glass against your injured flesh. However, the cure is so painful that it may kill you, deduct six points from your stamina. If you do not have a lantern, oil alone is no good. You will surely die. I do not have an oil lamp, uh, so I will surely die. Um, wow. Early doors. Very early doors. Okay. I will, of course, invoke the sausage finger bookmark rule. We will pretend that we uh, didn't suffer any damage. I won't restore my stamina to 21. I'll stick with the stamina of 13, but we will assume that we have dealt with the poison, perhaps in some other way, and move on. So, pretty early exit, but I feel as though pretty early exits are kind of my trademark. The man-orc fought with great ferocity, but you have defeated him. Such creatures usually dwell in isolated areas, so for him to be here in the city, your assailant must have been driven by either the promise of great rewards or by fear of a terrible punishment. Searching the swiftly decaying carcass, you find a small black key, which you may take. Soon, you are walking through the south gate out of Royal Lundell and away from the scene of the assassination attempt. You run to the meeting place and are pleased to find Mendekan and his two friends waiting for you. One of them is very old, making the ensuing journey painfully slow. To make up for this, you have to walk long into the night and you are all very tired when you reach the Magyar Pass. This, the narrowest stretch of the trade route, is little more than a rocky path. On the left looms a sheer rock face and on the right runs a deep crevice about six metres wide and five times that deep. On the far side of the crevice is another path. By common agreement, all traffic from Lendl uses the path you are on, while all traffic going to Lendl uses the far path. As you walk through the pass, the Magyar walls blot out the moonlight and the shining stars above. Suddenly, a dreadful cry pierces the air, followed by another and another. The villagers cringe in terror while you prepare for combat. Then you see them coming along the path towards you. Five riders on hellish steeds whose hooves make the very earth quake and who race to crush you underfoot. Their robes billow and their long hair flows in the wind. Even though they wear strange metallic masks, you can see that their skin is decayed and their eyes are black bottomless pits of death. Mendican wails, We are doomed! The shadow warriors are upon us! The others run, but their flight is a futile one. They are swiftly put to the sword. But the warriors, they are real after all. Will you stand and fight them, or admit that you cannot hope to fend off all five undead and flee? So there is a picture of the shadow warriors on their Nightmare Steeds, it's really good, although I will say that the Shadow Warriors do kind of look like masked wrestlers. The pass in the background is nice, and the darkness of the sky and the, the warriors themselves, it's really dynamic. The horses are really good as well. 
Uh, just another thoroughly awesome bit of art from Martin McKenna. Do we fight well with my functional skill of 9 and um, 13 stamina? I'm probably not going to be able to fight these people, so I think it's going to be the old um, cheese-it strategy. Uh, we will take to our heels in a fit of abject cowardice. I bet I can run faster than this villager, which uh, might help. Realising you are no match for the might of all five warriors combined, you run back to the north. Your lungs burn as you try and put some distance between yourself and the shrieking phantoms. Fortunately, you come at last to a narrowing of the path which forces the warriors to ride in a single file. But one of them has sped ahead of the others in a bid to delay you. You must fight and destroy it before the rest catch up. Roll one die to see which of the five you must face if you... Roll a six, ignore the result, and roll again. So we'll fight one of these shadow warriors, and then if we win, we'll be able to escape. So warrior number three. This shadow warrior is a master swordsman wielding with consummate ease a pair of razor-edged broadswords, one in each hand. Each time you lose an attack round against this foe, you must deduct four points from your stamina instead of the usual two. Armour or testing your luck may not be used to reduce this damage. So, the third Shadow Warrior has a skill of 9 and a stamina of 9, which, given that I might as well halve my effective stamina... Yeah, I've got 7 stamina, effectively. So he should defeat me, but we'll let the dice decide. Maybe I will roll really well. I'm going to roll some dice. I have been defeated by the Shadow Warrior. Um, I reduced the Shadow Warrior to 4 stamina because I tried testing my luck to deal double damage, which is allowed under the rules of this combat, to see if I could um, steal a march. And I didn't. I mean, I think it's still too early to call it a day here. So I am going to, for the second time, invoke the Sausagey Finger bookmark rule which doesn't happen very often at all. And I'm going to assume that I defeated the Shadow Warrior and I'll give myself 2d6 health. Okay, I've got 8 stamina. Made wary by your victory, the other warriors rein their horses to a halt. As one, the four hiss with fear and hatred. But you don't stay put to watch this display of evil. You run round a bend, putting yourself out of their sight. Then you hear the pounding of hooves, as the warriors take up their pursuit once more. You won't be so lucky a second time. You need to find a way to shake them off. Will you attempt to hide in one of the many ruts in the rocky path? Hurriedly put on a chameleon cloak if you have one, and hug the shadowy side of the looming rock face, or attempt a running jump across the deep ravine to the path on the other side of the path. Hiding in the ruts in the rocky path? That sounds as though I could get run over by a horse quite badly. A running jump over the deep ravine? I mean, that could work. Obviously, I don't have a chameleon cloak because I have been playing, even by my standards, atrociously on this adventure. Okay, I feel as though if it were me designing it, the hiding in the ruts in the rocky path would be a luck test to avoid getting trampled, and a running jump might be a skill test. So... I'm going to try for the um, skill test because my luck is currently four. Correctly worked out. 
The leap is not going to be an easy one. Test your skill. Eight easily made. Against all the odds, you have made it to the far path. Seeing your miraculous leap, the warriors howl in frustration. They themselves cannot make the jump since the far path offers too narrow a landing area for their horses. You fear that the riders will now split up and wait for you at both ends of the pass. But no, they screech and all race southwards. You sense that time is against them. Perhaps they fear the oncoming dawn. Whatever the reason, you breathe a long, long sigh of relief. Hooray, something has gone right. Something has gone right. That's the first thing that's gone right this entire time. The 200 gold pieces you have been promised as payment is no longer important. Mendican and his people were under your protection, and you have failed them. The Shadow Warrior's power is awesome, unlike anything you have ever seen. But you shall defeat these Dark Riders. You shall avenge all the innocent folk whom they have slain. For surviving the ambush, you may add two points to your luck. Oh, much needed. Luck now six. It is dawn when you reach the southern end of the Magyar Pass, a place you will always remember as the scene of your greatest defeat. You stop to rest and consider your next move. The road to Karnstein leads straight to the south. Until you get there, more villagers will suffer or die each night. To the east, however, lives an all-knowing hermit. Maybe you should learn all there is to know about these seemingly indestructible warriors before you go rushing into battle. The hermit alone may possess such esoteric knowledge. Ah, uh, let's go in search of the, the hermit then. Um, that seems reasonable to me. You make straight towards the east and soon come to a large bridge. You cross it and join the Weirtown Road, which you follow until you reach the region of low wooded hills where the hermit is said to live. An area also renowned for highwaymen. The sun is sinking when you leave the road and take a winding trail northwards up onto the high ground. There you find a famous landmark, the Wizard's Well. An old wizardly face carved into a low overhang of moss-covered rock looks down on a magic spring. Only good can come from partaking of this fluid. Will you pause to drink from the wizard's well or continue on your way? I will drink from the wizard's well. I will drink pints from the wizard's well if it might help me in this quest. You walk over to the cool waters and are about to drink when you hear a stern voice call, Stand and deliver! You turn around and find yourself facing a masked highwayman. He is aiming a crossbow at your heart. The villain laughs. No doubt you're another fool in search of the hermit. Well, forget it. He's dead. And I killed him. And I'll do the same to you unless you can buy your freedom. His finger tightens the trigger of his crossbow. Will you attack the knave? Offer him some gold or look in your pack for something else to give him? Well, my pack contains a black key and a single loaded die. Maybe he'd like a loaded die. I'll try offering him a loaded die. While you are looking in your pack for something to give the scoundrel, it suddenly occurs to you that you may be able to give him something which could prove his undoing. If you want to give him a chameleon cloak, you can. Or would you rather give him an orb of mind snaring? Um, I would love to give him any or either of those, but I have neither. So I've got to either offer him some gold or attack him. So I guess we're going to fight a highwayman. Not giving him gold. Like, if I'm not prepared to pay my taxes, 
You're not giving gold to some random bloke with a crossbow. You hear a loud snapping sound. The highwayman has fired his crossbow. Fortunately, his aim is none too steady. Test your luck. Four. They have succeeded. Doing reasonably well on the old luck tests, considering. Luck now five. So the attack misses and I get to fight the highwayman who has a skill of seven and a stamina of six. And even I ought to be able to manage this one. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the highwayman and what ought to have been a very straightforward fight against a skill seven opponent reduced me to two stamina. So this feels like a really cursed recording. Uh, still, a win is a win. Maybe I can nick his sword. I really hope so. The struggle over, you search the body of your fallen adversary and find two gold pieces and provisions enough for one meal. A meal which I will eat immediately, tucking into the Cornish pasty he'd been saving for later and restoring my stamina to six. Now have 25 gold. It didn't say I can nick his short sword, but I'm going to say that I can nick his short sword. And that seems reasonable to me and restore my lost point of skill, taking my skill back up to 10. Uh, I will now drink from the wizard's well. Cupping your hands, you scoop the water up to your lips. The magical liquid makes your head spin as it takes immediate effect. So we've got a little table and we can see what happens. There's a few good options. And I roll a six so I can restore one skill. Two luck, taking my luck back up to seven. And four stamina, taking my stamina up to a healthy ten. I have not lost any skill. So we can only drink from the well once, seems reasonable. Uh, but we can continue moving south to try and find this village. Your search for the hermit has used up a good deal of precious time. Unless you can find some way to make it up, you may very well reach Karnstein too late to save it. Eventually, you rejoin the Weirtown Road. Do you wish to follow it back west, or would you rather cut across country and head directly southwards, remembering that roads usually offer greater safety for the traveller? Time is against us. We are just going to press on south. A few hours pass. You find yourself in a wide open field when the overcast sky breaks to the sound of thunder and is torn apart by jagged lightning. Soon, you are drenched in torrents of rain. In the near distance to your right is a copse which may offer some shelter. Straight ahead are more open fields. You are just wondering which would be the best route to follow when the earth starts to shake. The wet grass ahead of you bulges upwards, forming a mound, and the side of the mound contorts into a face. An impossibly wide mouth opens and howls with deafening force. The very earth is screaming, and its cries are accompanied by the most violent quake yet. You will have to try very hard not to lose your footing as you run across the slippery grass. Test your luck. Seven. Just made. Good job I got some luck from that uh, magical spring. You don't let anything distract you as you run over the slick, quaking ground. However, the way ahead is blocked by the huge mound. Will you approach the screaming face or make for the copse that is off to your right in the hope of veering back south later or retreat and head back northwest towards the road? Um, let's run for the copse, I think. 
What is it? The uh, the line from uh, Lord of the Rings: "Shortcuts make for long delays." The weirdness shows no sign of abating as you enter the copse, nor do the twisted trees offer you any protection from the rain. Suddenly, a fork of lightning cuts down through the darkness and blasts a tree right in front of you. You take another path, but find your way blocked by another fork of lightning and another, and another. You run. But no matter which way you turn, you come close to being incinerated. It is only after several minutes of this deadly cat-and-mouse game that you realise you are being herded into the heart of the copse. There you are confronted by a mahogodon. Mahogodon? A mahogodon, a long, dormant tree monster that has been stirred into wakefulness by the changes in the earth. One of its boughs swoops down and lifts you up, its leafless branches wrapping around your waist. You cry out as the woody tentacles begin to squeeze the life out of you. Do you have a sleeping draught? I do not. There is a picture of the Mahogodon. It's really good. Like the art in this has been top-notch throughout, this is particularly good. Imagine a tree crossed with Cthulhu and you're basically there. It's fantastic. The bowls, the knots, the dark boughs, the light reflecting off the side, the twisted face. It's just cracking. But yet yeah, we're going to have to fight this monster. With its strong limbs and tough coating of bark, the Mahogodon is a daunting opponent. If you wish, you may try to weaken your foe by burning it. Cross off a skin of oil from your adventure sheet and then test your skill. If you succeed, you burn and weaken the creature. If you fail, the creature's unyielding grip forces you to drop the oil on the ground, wasting it. Whatever the outcome, you must now fight. If you have succeeded in burning it, deduct two points from its skill and four points from its stamina before beginning the combat. Well, I cannot burn it, so I'm just going to have to fight the Mahogodon, which has a skill of 10 and a stamina of 12. Once more, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Mahogodon. Uh, it reduced me to two stamina, which is kind of what you'd expect, to be honest, given that it's got exactly the same skill as me. Yeah, just a very standard fight. I mean, it's just 50-50 rolls. I managed to do slightly better, dealing 12 points of damage to its eight, but yeah, hardly surprising. Uh, but I can now continue to the south or go back to the road. I'm going to continue south, never let it be said that I gave up on a really bad idea. All is dark, and a storm rages overhead as you make your way towards Hustings. The road is little more than a track that winds its way across the infamous Hustings moors, and, because of the downpour, is submerged in places becoming part of the mire. Wary of encroaching quicksand, you press on, your efforts aided by occasional lightning flashes of the storm. Suddenly, you catch sight of a peculiar grinning face. At first you think that something must be hiding in the reeds, but then you realise that the leafy face is the reeds, moving from clump to clump as if blown by the wind. It speaks in a spry and mischievous voice. "'Tis Jack in the green, the ancient king, here to offer you guidance. The world is dying, the soil corrupt, and the trees astir with violence. Warriors five seek their lord, and the one who must not be freed. Earth Mother seeks a healing hand, 
but tis proof of your worth she needs. Do you have a green leaf brooch? I do not, otherwise Jack in the Green will offer you a chance to prove your worth. Do you want to accept? I, yeah, fair enough, I will. There is too much corruption in the world, says Jack in the Green. The sleepers who should not be disturbed have been aroused. Your task is to lay the hustings to rest. Let the earth reclaim its own. But be warned. Violence can never be the final answer. Evil must be left to consume itself. Your duty is to help, not to beget further chaos. When you think you have succeeded, say the word Kernunos in your mind, and we will see what unfolds. Make a note of the word on your adventure sheet. I have indeed done that. Lovely little folklore elements in this. Troubled times are ahead, continues the enigmatic figure. To help you, the horned god sends a gesture of goodwill. Find the man of numbers, or his book. Without either, you will fail. Then the face is gone. It seems that Jack in the Green is a messenger for powerful elemental forces. Forces which you decide to join. You will strive to be the Earth Mother's champion against the evils of the Shadow Warriors. Squinting through the blinding rain, you can just make out the lights and rooftops of hustings. To the right of the town is a slender column of earth which has been forced up out of the ground by magic. Atop this hundred-foot-high pinnacle is a tower made of oozing, living sludge. You hear a slushing sound coming from somewhere just off the road, and just as you look, a flash of lightning reveals a man rising up out of the bog. At least, it looks like a man. Do you want to walk the few yards over to the figure, or would you rather stay on the road? Let's go and investigate. Only when you reach the man do you realise that he is far from human. Darkness prevents you from seeing just what the creature is, but you have no trouble hearing its swamp-gurgled snarls, or in catching the glint of the vicious blade it swings towards you. Hagwart, which is the creature's name, has a skill of ten and a stamina of four. I could actually beat it, even though I've only got two stamina. But uh, there's only one way to find out, and that's by rolling some dice. I did not beat the Hagwart. I was torn apart by its claws and vicious blade. So that, I think, will be the point at which we finish this unbelievably cursed edition of Fantastic Fights. It's clearly very hard. But at the same time, I'm having a lovely time with it. The writing is extremely strong. Some of the strongest I've seen in a fighting fantasy book. So I'm looking forward to finding out what secrets this book has in store. I'm going to go away and play on my own time. I'll be back for you in just a couple of seconds. Tatty bye. Having played through Legend of the Shadow Warriors, I think this might just be one of the best fighting fantasy books in the later series. We've had a few really strong books recently, but I think the last one that lodged in my mind like this one was probably Vault of the Vampire. After struggling through the 30s, the series seems to have hit a new creative period in the 40s, with writers really setting out to produce books that experiment with the form while sticking to the core principles of the franchise. I am going to be spoiling some of the best reveals in the book in my review, so if you haven't played it, I really do recommend finding the PDF that is available on the internet, 
and uh, giving it a go unless you feel like dropping 40 quid on a second-hand copy of the paperback. Essentially, Legend of the Shadow Warriors is a travelogue, and that suits me down to the ground. I love the travelogue form for gamebooks since it allows for a range of different encounters in a variety of different locations. I don't think it's an accident that most of the really successful fantasy movies employ travel heavily. From Kroll and Conan to Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, having your heroes move from place to place is an excellent engine for drama and gives you freedom to come up with set pieces that don't need to relate directly to each other. Travel logs are fairly straightforward to create compared to dungeons and they have an instinctive appeal thanks to the varied characters and locations. I think the travelogue followed by a short but deadly dungeon might just be the platonic ideal of the fantasy gamebook. And the journey here is fantastic. It takes you from a city to the wilderness and across a mountain range, taking in various villages and other locations along the way. Ultimately, you'll be ending up in Karstein to try and seek vengeance for the destruction wrought by the lord of the titular Shadow Warriors. There's two different routes you can take, and each of them has their own challenges and rewards. Neither of them is the absolutely correct path, although one is somewhat easier than the other. It made exploring the book feel like an absolute treat. Even within the two main routes, there's decisions you can make which lead to different encounters, and that helps keep things feeling fresh, even on repeated playthroughs. However, the thing that makes this book really stand out for me is the way the author has injected plot lines that permeate the whole story. If there's a criticism of the travelogue format, it's that the story can wind up feeling disjointed and aimless, simply a series of unusual events which are self-contained and seem to take place in a vacuum. What Stephen Hand does here, similar to the approach that he and his co-author took with Dead of Night, is to tie several of the encounters together into a single subplot. If you take one of the paths, you will find that the horrors visited on several locations have a common cause. A group of mandrakes, weird vegetable body snatchers, is roaming the land, disguised as a travelling circus, stealing people, and replacing them with evil vegetable doppelgangers. You can find a clue to this in Royal Lendl right at the start before tackling a village in the process of being assimilated, and then hitch a lift with the mandrakes themselves and possibly destroy them. This is the kind of attention to detail that really makes a travelogue come alive for me, partly because it makes the setting feel coherent and gives the impression that things are happening in it which are independent of your actions, and partly because I'm a huge fan of evil circuses in general and evil clowns in particular. There's a lovely illustration when you catch up to the mandrakes with a Piero clown welcoming you to the circus and looking deeply sinister. Dealing with the circus feels immensely satisfying, not least because you've been unable to prevent the carnage at the village they have already visited. As well as providing a satisfying plotline, this highlights another element of the book which helps it all tie together. Many of the encounters have been inspired by classic horror tropes, less literary sources than the B-movies that draw on those literary sources. The Mandrakes are straight out of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but there's also a village being attacked by a pumpkin-headed mob of scarecrows under the control of a vampire, and you can run across a mad woman doing her best Baron Frankenstein impersonation. These encounters give the adventure a thematic coherence which makes the world feel more tonally consistent. 
I especially like the Frankenstein-inspired one, which manages to squeeze a lot of storytelling into a very short space. The Doctor is trying to create a new body for herself, rather than just meddling with the forces of nature for chuckles. It strikes that balance between a familiar trope and presenting something novel at the same time. Incidentally, at one point the final area of my last gamebook was going to be a riff on Frankenstein, where the twist was that the monster was being assembled as he went through different paths in the dungeon. Depending on which paths you took, different body parts would be added to the monster, which you would eventually fight, and it would have had stats and powers based on the choices you made, and the different creatures used to put it together. I think it would have been a really cool set piece, but it was also far too complicated for a single area. It's something that needed to be the focus of an entire book, I think. Perhaps I'll revisit it if I ever get around to doing my werewolf book with phases of the moon and all kinds of silly nonsense. While there's a lot of evil horror elements, that's balanced with some nice folklore elements on the good side. You'll be making friends with Jack O the Green, who can act as a proxy for the Horned King and the Earth Mother. I think this bit is a little underdone, if I'm honest. The plot loses interest in your neo-pagan patrons once you've been given a magical spear with which to best the bad guy, but it's still cool that it's in there and it does feel appropriate to the dark fantasy setting that's been provided. These folklore elements fit in with the overall vibe and they keep the adventure feeling quite low-key, which I always appreciate. This isn't a story where you're being sent on your mission by a queen or a smug wizard, you're working for a bunch of farmers initially, and then for personal revenge once the bunch of farmers come to a sticky end. It might be my political biases showing through, but I much prefer the stories where you're not acting as an arm of the state. I think there's something more relatable in these smaller scale motivations, and having the cosmology draw from folklore rather than the pantheon of state-sponsored religion helps keep things grounded. You get a smattering of classic fantasy staples as well. My favourite one is the journey over the Witchtooth line of mountains, where you can end up tangling with a tribe of orcs that's at war with another tribe of orcs, and in the process you can be captured and caught up in the middle of this conflict. I like it because on the one hand it's a classic, but on the other the author has managed to invest his orcs with slightly more of a relatable personality. They have motivations that are a little deeper than just wanting to murder everyone they meet, and you can have a discussion with them that's more than simply antagonistic. They are evil, for sure, but they don't seem senseless in their evil, and the way they deal with slaves feels more pragmatic than simply sadistic, which is both more realistic and, I think, more chilling. There is something unsettling about depicting a culture that is just very, very comfortable with the institution of slavery. I can also see something of an early Warhammer influence on the story. Whereas Dungeons and Dragons wanted to sell you on the fantasy of becoming a mighty wizard and fighting dragons, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay wanted to sell you on the fantasy of being a rat catcher who gets stabbed to death in a sewer. I always liked that vibe much more, not least because I think there's more heroism in dying in a sewer than there is in a dragon's lair. It's easy to be the hero when the state tells you you will be handsomely rewarded with the implied threat that failure to comply will earn censure or possibly death. It's easier still to walk away from people whose concerns just don't matter and leave them to their fate. Legend of the Shadow Warrior does dangle 200 gold to get you on the hook, but 
it soon makes it clear that it's not the money which is the real motivation. The structure and the atmosphere are both great, but there's also plenty of mechanical brilliance on display as well. The weapon rules work fine, as do the armour rules, but there's a couple of things I wanted to single out for closer examination, since they both make use of the dreaded hidden section mechanic in interesting ways. The first element is the way that you fight the Shadow Warriors themselves. At various points through the text you get a chance to fight a duel with a Shadow Warrior who is randomly selected from the list of five. Each of them has their own signature attack, which is already cool, as it gives them an identity and makes them stand out. If you defeat the warrior, you go back to your adventure. Usually, the warrior will reform itself and recover after being defeated, but if you can find the secret of their regeneration, you can actually destroy them semi-permanently. This is done with a hidden section which you can turn to after defeating a shadow warrior to enjoy a proper victory. It's very neatly designed because the system for fighting the different Shadow Warriors is already quite complex, so it's not the sort of place you would expect a secret section to be lurking. It also allows the author to include a hidden section without needing to allude to it in the text, because the circumstances for triggering that hidden section are crystal clear. We've occasionally seen hidden sections fumble when the author tries to get too clever about disguising them. This is perfect. Added to which, you don't absolutely need the hidden section to progress, though it is definitely useful. This is the ideal use case for a hidden section. It provides a lovely surprise for the player when they discover it, but it doesn't break the game if you don't. The second use of hidden sections is also really cool. In the closing act, you need to hunt down the big bad, and you get given a map with a bunch of points of interest labelled on it. You need to work out where on the map the big bad might be, and in order to do that you must turn each of the points of interest into a number using a code found in one of those magical treatises that litter the average fantasy world. This feels really good to me. The code is fairly easy to find, and turning the locations into numbers is less onerous than usual, thanks to the code only using the digits 1 to 9 rather than 1 to 26. It's a small thing, but it prevents any confusion when you come to add the numbers together about whether you're adding a 1 and a 3 or the number 13 to the total. It's always a 1 and a 3 in this instance. And the key thing with this is that even though it's using hidden sections, the map itself feels interactive. There's a bunch of places marked on it that you can choose from, and although the right answer isn't particularly hard to fathom thanks to some decent clues, it still feels great to get it right. Saving the only genuinely necessary hidden paragraph for the finale feels appropriate as well. Although I'd generally rather let the player cheat if they want to, I think with a book this well designed, a couple of hidden sections doesn't feel like an imposition. As I say, the code isn't that hard to find, and the book is generally pretty generous with clues and foreshadowing. And that means that it's a book that almost always feels fair, and that gives you confidence to explore. In some ways, the hardest element of the book is actually the opening, where your adventure will go slightly better if you make precisely the right choices in Royal Lendl. Now, that's not actually a problem, because the opening is the part of the book that you're going to spend the most time with, and that means that you've got lots of opportunities to explore it thoroughly. In the past, I've generally felt that the opening ought to be fairly simple, to show people how the game works and set the scene and show the kind of book that you're going to be engaging with. But 
honestly, by book 44 in a series, that's probably no longer important. Doing a complex opening, it turns out, has its own advantages, and it certainly helps make the book feel replayable. It doesn't hurt that messing about in cities is one of my favourite things to do in game books, so I'm really glad that it's in there. I think cities work so well in game books because of how cities constrain action despite being theoretically open spaces filled with people. NPCs are hard to do in game books because human interactions are, on the face of it, hard to boil down to a handful of choices. But urban environments trammel human behaviour far more effectively than rural environments. Cities are full of people, but they only really interact with each other when one of them wants something. That automatically narrows the range of possible outcomes towards a binary, and binaries are always the friend of the gamebook designer. It's slightly bleak to think that the most complex social organism known to humanity can be so easily abstracted into a series of either-or choices, but that's the transactionalism of modern life for you. Royal Lundell is also an object lesson in making sure you pay your taxes on time. There's something pleasingly quotidian about your biggest early opponent being a tax collector. That's the kind of bathos that I think really marks the writer as British. It's a classic feature of British games that the mundane intrudes on the fantastical in ways that undercut the heroic fantasy. It's hard to imagine this sort of thing happening in a Robert E. Howard story, but very easy to imagine it happening in a Pat Mills comic. There's a woman in Royal Lendl ranting about magical disarmament, which could have come straight out of the pages of 2000 AD. As well as writing fighting fantasy books, Stephen Hand designed a couple of games for Games Workshop in their early days, including Chainsaw Warrior, a lovely single-player card game, which definitely also has a 2000 AD vibe to it. If I was going to offer criticism, one would be that quite a lot of the decisions are contextless, left-right or straight-on decisions. It's not the biggest issue. This is something that every gamebook needs to do from time to time, and it's pretty good about letting you explore an entire location, which mitigates the impact of not being able to guess which one's the right way to go first. But there's still more than I would absolutely like outside of a dungeon environment. If I was going to offer a second criticism, I would add that there's a maze. I'm sure one day I'll come across a maze that doesn't read like the author finished a book and needed to find another few sections to hit 400, but that day is not today. I'd really like it if we, as a gamebook community, came up with something different to pad the word count. I think I'd rather have had a filling-in-my-tax-return minigame than another hastily cobbled-together maze that loops senselessly back on itself. And I think it illustrates that gamebooks should be as long as they need to be. If Legend of the Shadow Warrior had been 375 sections long and didn't have a maze, it would have been great, it would have been fine, it would have been better even. I think 400 paragraphs is actually quite a lot, and many authors would have benefited from slimming their book down to 350, or maybe even 300. It's something that is definitely informed by my age. In middle age, I'd much rather have something amazing but short than something really good but long. There's obviously plenty of books that go to 400 sections or even longer without any effort, but ultimately some ideas fit better into a smaller space. And I think you should go with the iteration of the idea 
that works best, not the iteration of the idea that fills the most space. Before we finish, I ought to shout out the artwork one last time. I'm a big fan of McKenna's work, and there isn't a duff illustration anywhere in this book. Everything has been given due care and attention, and there's not one instance of an empty room with a single chest sitting in the middle of it. There's some great examples too of the art being integrated with the gamebook itself. There's a point where you have to make a choice between unfreezing two statues, and the text refers you to the illustration for some clues. The map at the end also fits into this category. My favourite though is that there's an image repeated twice, once showing a woman running away from a man in an alley, and a second version which is identical except that it reveals that the man is in fact a mandrake. This is a fantastic bit of business, really integrating the artwork into the story in an interesting way. Basically, Legend of the Shadow Warriors is fantastic. It's got great story, great design and great mechanics that all feed into one another in a way that feels generally seamless. Stephen Hand would contribute one more book to the series, Moonrunner, and I cannot wait to see what he does next. Uh, I should give a quick shout out to the Fighting Fantasy fan page, uh, where I found a handy set of maps for this book. It wasn't one I needed to map as I went, but having access to a map to make sure I'd found everything was much appreciated when it came to writing my closing remarks. That's all for this episode. Join me in a couple of weeks as we begin on a mammoth odyssey into the pile of game books that Stuart Lloyd very kindly sent me. Thanks to his largesse, we'll be sorted for bonus episodes roughly until the heat death of the universe. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com, or you can follow me on bluesky at hjdoom. Thank you very much for listening, take care, and I'll see you soon.